you have a Bible this morning and you want to read with us, we're going to take a very brief scripture reading today, found in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 13. The book of 1 Samuel chapter 13. And we're going to read the end of a story. It's these last two verses here. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. says this in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. That'll conclude our reading this morning, and um, the title of our reading or of our message today, I guess, is kind of two parts: um, seeking God's heart, seeking God's heart, and I. I'm certain that this will take me a few weeks to get through, and so, um, but I'd like to try to do that. I feel impressed that I need to do that. Um, and so I guess this is just our first part of perhaps as many sermons as it'll take, two or three, to get through this um, message, Seeking God's Heart. And if I could give a focus of today, what we're going to focus on this morning is the problem of people-pleasing. The problem of people-pleasing. Now, I might begin, there's so many thoughts that are running through my mind this morning. I ask you to pray for me that the Lord would just direct where I need to go and what I need to say today. Um, From our vantage point, um, uncertainty is a bad thing. And yet, from God's vantage point, it could be a very valuable thing. Because God is uncertain of nothing. He knows the hidden things, or what we call hidden. So I may look at you and I may wonder, well, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what their intent of their words are. I wonder what their desires are. And all of those things, as I heard it put this week, I had never heard it this way, I don't guess, your thought life. That life you live up in your brain. Um, All that is hidden from everyone else. The future is hidden to us. We don't know... The next few moments, what's going to happen? And especially at certain times, that uncertainty is nothing short of terrifying for us. And yet, God is not uncertain of anything. He knows the future. 
He knows it's a strange thought if you really dwell on it, not just as a cliche statement. He knows the day you're going to die. It's a strange thought. God knows the exact day, the exact moment, the exact way that you're going to die. Everyone around you. And yet, uncertainty in us, or God permitting uncertainty in us, is very valuable to God. He's able to see certain things about us during periods of uncertainty that He does not see, I guess He does, but that we don't see during periods of uh, certainty. Right? So, when things are going well, you often hear when things are going good, we love God and we praise Him and we salute Him and He's our chief joy. But to really determine if He's our chief joy, He may permit some uncertainty to come. We may be like Peter as we've studied on Wednesday nights in the Gospel of John and boast of our faith, only to have our faith revealed to us during a moment of uncertainty. And as I've studied these thoughts, um, one thing has become apparent to me about this. We know that there's a famous phrase that people often will say about David. It's derived in part from the verses that we read to you. It's also derived in part from the book of Acts chapter 13, when, whenever uh, Paul is preaching. And it labels him a man after God's own heart. Speaking of David. And in some ways, I don't like how those titles get twisted and turned and redefined. Um, because it's almost inevitable, right? A Christian today is whatever you want it to be in our culture. And so when somebody says, I'm a Christian, that doesn't really mean a lot to me because their definition of Christian may be different than my definition of Christian. And so is the case with this title, A Man After God's Own Heart. What does that mean? Why is that important? And at its core, I guess, lies the question, are you and I... People after God's own heart. And if so, or if not, how is that revealed to us? Like, how do you know if you're someone that God would define as someone after his own heart? Because many people take a false assurance in, I'm a Christian, I'm a church member, I'm a this and I'm a that. And yet, to me, the way, the thing that is more important than those things, not that those things all aren't important, and perhaps being a Christian obviously is the most important, but what is the deepest level? What is the deepest title you can give? And I can't find a better description in the Bible of someone than someone who is after God's own heart. And so... To really understand this, in the text that we read to you in 1 Samuel 13, it's not used as a title as much as it is a distinctive. And that's different. You see, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching this long message and he's talking about Israel's history and he's trying to bring this thing before the Jews. And so he uses that as a title. David is a man after God's own heart. 
But in our original text, it's not really used as a title in as much as it is a description to contrast people. And I believe beginning there forward to chapter 17 or 18, what God does in 1 Samuel is he reveals what a man looks like who is after his own heart and what a man looks like who's after God's own heart. And so what he's doing in this text in 1 Samuel is he's showing you, look at what Saul does. Look at what, where Saul's heart is at. And then when he establishes clearly that Saul is not a man after his own heart, here then he introduces in 1 Samuel 16 a man that was after his own heart whose name was David. And so to really dig down to the, deep, or the depth of this, I think we first have to look at this case study of Saul. What does a man or a woman look like who is not someone after God's own heart? And I think what we're going to discover, just to go ahead and reveal it, is that very often those people that are not after God's own heart, their heart is set on pleasing other people and ultimately pleasing self. And so we begin in 1 Samuel 13. We got to really back up a little bit because we go back to 1 Samuel 8 and we learn that there is this large change that's going to have taken place. And that is for for a large part of Israel's history, almost four centuries, they have lived under a certain type of rule where God was the king and then he would lift up a leader known as a judge to accomplish what he wanted temporarily and then that judge would be done away with and then God would continue to lead and guide the people through a theocracy. But the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8 are tired of this. And so the question is, who's going to be a better leader than God? Like, what is it about God being your king that was dissatisfactory to them? Well, I would contend here in a moment. We'll show you here in chapter 8. You can go and turn there if you want. Verses 19 and 20. It led to uncertainty. Like, you know this. You've experienced this in, in your life. When you're seeking an answer desperately, does God always instantly give you an answer? No. When you ask, as Jesus does in the garden, can you remove this cup of suffering from me? And God says no. Or like Paul in 2 Corinthians, he prays, God, I have a thorn in the flesh. Please remove this thorn. And God says, my grace is sufficient to you. And he allows us to live in periods of both uncertainty and pain for an eternal good. And to the flesh, we don't want that. We want our will and those things to be removed from us. And very often we're short-sighted enough to accept whatever eternal consequences come if we can just have our temporary state alleviated. But God doesn't work that way. He's looking at our entire good, our long, the long game. But the people are dissatisfied with that. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, after they have rejected Samuel and his offspring as their judges, and they begin to plead for a king, there's two things that emerge of the reason why they want a king. The first reason was this. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. 
And so they looked around and they saw all of these other nations and perhaps the security that came with a form of government where you have a definitive leader who can set forth edicts and all the people obey and you're not looking to have to go to God through prayer. You're not having to... uh, perhaps be placed in such vulnerable conditions that God requires us as his people to be in in order to demonstrate his sufficiency and his salvation. But listen, sometimes God allows us to be put in positions that in our circumstance, God might deliver his way so that his way might be known. Or in other words, it's not about us. We become a means of displaying God's glory. And that's not fun. I mean, we can talk all the Christian guru stuff. We can talk all the philosophical, high-minded, uh, uh, spiritual elitist stuff. But when you're going through it, it is awful. The people wanted to be like the other nations around them. They wanted to fit in. Listen, our lives as Christians is different than a non-Christian. We cannot... Not we should not. We cannot pursue the ambitions the world does. It's not even on the table. And when you're associating with the world, there's a cost to that. You begin to envy and you begin to covet and you begin to, in periods of spiritual weakness, become embittered. Why can't I just do what they do? Why can't I have what they have? Why can't I live in... And there's an embittering that can take place. They, in 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 to 20, they reveal, they want to be like the other nations around them. And then here was a second reason. They wanted somebody to fight their battles. It says that. Look at verse 20. It says, we want someone who will go and fight for us. That sounds nice, doesn't it? You ever have those periods of time where you just want to disappear? Stress gets so heavy, things get so hard. You've done the whole circular or the cyclical, you know, family dynamics that um, there's a cycle to it. I'll just leave it there. I'm not going to describe it, right? Where you're surviving things, people, somebody flips out, and then there's a period where you have to come back and make peace, and then you're back on the mountain again, and then it's like a cycle. And it would be nice when you start, after you've experienced it a few times, if you could just back away and disappear and let somebody else fight the battle, but you can't. You can't. And here, they want somebody to come and fight the battle, and so God grants them that. Think about that. God granted them what they wanted. You ever heard the saying that the worst thing God could ever do for you is give you what you want? Sometimes there's truth to that. You pray for something, Lord, I really want this. Maybe you really don't because you don't know the future if you get it. God gives them a king. God even gives them a king of their own choosing. I won't get into why they chose that king, but eventually what it comes down to is that he looked like a king. That's why they wanted him. And so in our text that we read to you today, it was a part of a bigger story. 1 Samuel chapter 13 begins where the Philistines are coming and they, they arm up to attack Israel. 
And so they have something like 6,000 chariots. I can't remember. That, that may not be the right number. whole bunch of chariots that they assemble. they got all these footmen that they assemble. And the people of Israel hear about what they're doing. And so Saul summons all the people of Israel to come that they might fight against the Philistines. But one of the things that God required is that a sacrifice, a burnt offering be made prior to going to battle. And so Samuel tells Saul, evidently, at some point I'm going to come within seven days and I am going to prepare this sacrifice that you can go and fight. And so day seven comes and the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 13 that the people begin to scatter. And Saul looks around And he begins to see the people scatter. Well, he knows the Philistines are coming and I need to have an army that can fight against these Philistines. Now listen, he likely also knew the history of when God just took 300 and he defeated a whole army, which is 300 men. He had seen through the book of Judges. He knew through the book of Judges. God is all powerful and does not need the natural means of men to accomplish God's will, even as extraordinary as a battle that might be before us. And yet Saul begins to look around and he sees the people fleeing and he's afraid he's not going to have an army when the Philistines show up. And so Saul quiets the people. And rather than having the priest of God come and offer the offering, Saul takes it upon himself to offer the offering. He, frankly, he disobeys God. He's premature in doing this. And right when he finished the offering, Samuel walks up. In other words, deliverance was on its way. He just let fear get the best of him. But it wasn't just fear of the Philistines, because what the text reveals is it wasn't really the Philistines. It was the people. He, whenever he begins to speak to to Samuel, he says, I was afraid because the people began to scatter. Now let's remember this. Samuel had been rejected in some ways, right? Saul had seen the people get dissatisfied with Samuel and with his sons. And so that Saul had experienced or he had witnessed himself a person being removed from office because of the people's will. And now Saul's in that position of leadership. And Saul begins to see the people scatter. He begins to see the will of the people change. And what is he afraid of? Likely that what would happen to him or what happened to Samuel would also happen to him. And so he jumps the gun. What we read to you in chapter 13, he says this. Samuel says, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. I want you to see something here. God had a plan for Saul. Please hear me this morning. God had a plan for Saul that was going to last well beyond his lifetime. Saul didn't see that. God did. And so what God required of him, just be obedient to me as my king of my people. Just be obedient and trust me, no matter the circumstance. I will accomplish my end. But Saul begins to look to please the people. And when he does, hear me this morning, there were, there were permanent consequences to Saul's actions. Because now God determined, no longer am I going to establish you and your children on my line forever. 
I'm seeking a man who is after my own heart to do this. Now let me ask you this question. God has a will for all people. And very often people disregard and disobey him. And there's this fanciful thought in the world today that no matter what I do or no matter what you do, God's going to get his will accomplished in me. I don't know about that. Because it seems like here God says to Saul, I had intended for you to reign upon Israel's throne forever. But because of your choices, because of your disobedience, I need a man who is after my own heart. Who when placed in periods of uncertainty, when put in a position whether to please me or please the people, will always choose to please me. And he re- now, this isn't the only occasion because we turn two chapters later and we read another occasion, probably the most famous occasion of Saul's disobedience. And this is when God says to, to Saul, I want you to go into Israel, or excuse me, I want you to go into the Amalekites and they have done something 400 years ago and it has lasted all of this time and I am now ready for judgment. Now again, I want you to pause for a moment and recognize that very often what Satan will do is blind us that the only thing that matters in the world is us and that our lives and our will is the center of God's universe. But God comes to Saul and he says, listen, I want to use you for something that's taken place over four centuries of time. And I'm going to pause for a moment and say this. The world is so much bigger than us. Your narrow experience, your narrow desire, your narrow will, the way that you feel at this moment, the world is much bigger than that. And unfortunately, at times, your actions of disobedience have an effect on that world that are very real. And they may temporarily satiate or or calm your emotions. But listen, just because we do something and it helps us does not mean it's in God's will. He wanted to accomplish something a lot bigger than what Saul understood. He tells him that reason. Saul goes, and he does most of God's will. Does that sound familiar? It does to me. About myself, he does most of it. He goes and he kills the people that he was supposed to. But he spared the king, Agag, king of the Amalekites. Then the people begin to tell Saul, let us take spoil of their things. Can we take their things? Can we take their animals and sacrifice them to God? Well, why would they want to do that? Because then it wouldn't cost them to make a sacrifice to God. If we can go and we can conquer this nation, take all of their sheep and all of their oxen, and we can make that as a sacrifice to God and appease him, then we don't have to make a sacrifice ourselves. And so the people begin to cry out to Saul, please let us take these things. And Saul, having his heart set on pleasing the people, agrees. He's a people pleaser. I want to pause for a moment and ask you this. Are you a people pleaser? Now, I want to be clear in what I mean by people pleaser. Because there are some, and I say this as a note of weakness that you may even admit within yourself, that try to please all people. 
So whatever, whatever relationship you're in, you, you know, you say, I don't like conflict. I like for people to be happy. I like for peace to prevail in a relationship. So I will overextend myself in all relationships. I will lay down my will because what I like is to have peace with other people. And at times, what Satan will do is convince us that's what love is. Love is just appeasing people all the time. That's not love. If the motivation for that is not the person's good, ultimate good, is to avoid the temporary conflicts that may arise from not pleasing them, that's not love. That's people pleasing. And in the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 6, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 40, or 24, it actually identifies, he says, do not through eye service be man pleasers. Or in other words, don't just because you concede in action to what somebody demands of you and by pleasing them through your, their eyes, think that that is really love. It's not. It's man pleasing. Here, what was all doing? So there are some people, let me say this, that's their general attitude at large. They just try to please everybody. There are others of us that there's just a few people that we try to please. A spouse, a child, a friend, parents, someone who perhaps we have an unhealthy dependence on. And we're seeking that relationship to be in harmony and peace with one another. And so we do what we can to just appease. Now, for anybody that's a history buff, you know this about World War II. Appeasement was the problem. Right? Like there's a man in history who was heralded at the time by all people. He was heralded as this great politician, as a, as a times person. of. He was the man, Neville Chamberlain. And he would go around and he would go to these dictators and he would appease them. And one of those dictators' name was Adolf Hitler. And the newspapers proclaimed him to be this wonderful man. And then you had another cantankerous old feller, right? His name was Winston Churchill. And he was not an appeaser. Why? Because he could see the evil that would unfold by appeasing people. He knew that Hitler's intent was to conquer and destroy. And so, for over a decade, approximately a decade, he was the laughingstock, he was the stigma. He was the warmonger. He was the person who didn't understand. And very often I see those same exact principles play out in people's lives so often. Where you have people who think by appeasing and appeasing and appeasing. But listen, all it's doing is leading to a growing conflict. All it's doing is leading to more pain and more war and more casualties that are going to be involved. And so they look to appease and appease and appease. And then you wonder some days, you know, they were married for 30 years. And then all of the sudden, no, it wasn't all of the sudden. It was every day concessions of appeasement being made of little things. And that 
that anger and that burning resentment building and building and building and building until 30 years later. The human heart is tired of pleasing somebody. And they look to escape and very often they do it in an unseemly way. Here Saul is a people pleaser. And let me say this clearly. God got rid of Saul because he was unfit for the task that God needed in his king. And listen to me today. If our allegiance is ultimately when they're, listen, there are many times, and I want to say this, there are many times when we can please God and man at the same time. That my actions by being a biblical husband might be pleasing to my wife. And so while that's the case, that's wonderful. But there are going to be times when God's will and man's will are opposed to one another. That's why it's important to be a principled person upon God's word. I want to please God, period. That means if that's the case with you, the often the hardest thing to be able to do then is just, what is God's will? Help me, Lord, to discern your will. But if you're a people pleaser, life becomes a lot more challenging. And here's the reason why. Discerning God's will is not the primary goal that you have. It's discerning God's will and then somehow aligning it with those people that you seek to please. Making sure that you can compromise enough to keep everyone happy. And listen, there is not a world where God does not know the heart of man that he knows who we're trying to satisfy ultimately. And what God was looking for in a king and what other people were depending on, not only then but for generations to come, was a man whose heart was set to please God alone. So Saul, what does he do? First thing he does is Samuel comes, so he's not killed the king, Agag, and he's, not, he's taken some of those animals as spoil because that's what the people wanted. And so Samuel comes, walking up, and here's how Saul greets him. I have fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. What do you call that? A guilty conscience. He knew he had not pleased the Lord. And so Samuel asked this one piercing question. Then what is the sound of all those bleeding sheep that I hear? Why do I hear all these animals if you've command, if you've Fulfilled God's commandment. Again, to make it connect to today, that's very often the case to today, that if you have to come forward and give an explicit justification for actions, is likely because there's a guilty conscience. Here, Saul does that. And Samuel, as we talked on Wednesday nights, remember how Jesus talked to Thomas? Remember how Jesus talked to Peter? He just spoke the truth. He didn't avoid it, the conflict. He didn't try to hurt with his words. Samuel just speaks the truth to power, Saul. And here's what he says to him. So I want to pause there for a moment. We should not be scared 
of people when it is the truth hurting them. You hear me? Like for a people pleaser, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I fall into that category. Very often, people are afraid to speak the truth. Now listen, there's a lot of things that we should be afraid of offending people about, about our own sin. Right? I have certain personality quirks and flaws. I have certain sins about me that may offend and harm other people. And I ought to be conscious and aware and pray that God would filter those. That the things that I am speaking, would, the things that people are offended by, would not be things that are the sin of myself. But listen, when God has given his word and a commandment, And I have to remind myself this as I parent my children because there's an implicit fear within me that my children, when they get to age, will rebel and they'll run to the world and they'll forsake the ways of God. And so there's this temptation to lighten lighten discipline or to perhaps try to persuade through some carnal means or win their approval or win their love and devotion. But listen, it is of the utmost necessity to obey God first. And if it is the truth and the implementation of truth in your home that ends up causing your children to rebel do you think any uh, any device of your own will prevent that or in other words this do you want your children have you not seen the effects of children staying in church from the guilting of their parents where does that go like have you ever seen that be successful I haven't and usually even if they do attend They're a bump on a log. There's not a spiritual engagement. There's not a love for God. There's not a love for brothers and sisters. There's not an active burden carrying. There's an appeasement of parents because they're going to give me the dickens unless I come to church. That's not what is pleasing to God. Listen, Saul, he's trying to appease and appease and appease. And so Samuel just speaks the truth to him. Truth be told, speaking those things when you know somebody's not going to like it and upholding the truth, maybe you can speak it, but can you uphold it? I'll give you a basic analogy. You ever threaten your kids? If you do this, And we're not going to do this. And you know they're really looking forward to doing that. So they inevitably, they break the rule. And then you try to find some way to let them get what they want. Now, there's a lot of explanation that can go into that. But here's what I'll simply say. In most cases, that's not a good thing. In most cases, we're teaching children, you know what? You can do something against God's will and still get the desired reward for it. Samuel speaks to Saul, and here's what he says. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, 
and stubbornness is as an iniquity and adultery and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. I'm going to begin to close with saying this. So notice what happens here. Finally, and this, this is so almost humorous to me because I can see it out play in my own life in my own home. Finally, Samuel looks to, his, to the king, Saul, and he gives him the verdict of God's judgment. You have lost the kingship. Now up to this point, Saul had been saying, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. And then the verdict of judgment was given. The kingdom is being removed from you and your home. And then what's the first thing that Saul says? Okay, 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 I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Now please come and bless me and don't do that to me. Right, the catalyst to obedience in Saul initially was just to please the people, but then it was to avoid punishment. Samuel turns around and says, no. God has rejected you. And I want to say this. Did you know that there are times when God's verdict of judgment is final? Like, think about this for a moment. God loves people more than you and I could ever conceive of. And yet he sends people to hell every day. God does not want to do that. God wants to redeem and save. And yet still, God condemns people to a devil's hell every single day. And his judgment is final. Once he comes back, he's not going to go to hell and say, you know what? Now that you've learned your lesson, everybody come on. Why? Because there are real consequences to disobedience. They are lasting and permanent. And God says to him, I have found a different man who will seek to please me above all else. And so we see Saul, and it's, this is probably wrong of me to say this, I think Saul is most Christians today. Stuck between pleasing God and pleasing somebody or all people or him, whatever it is. And they just stand all of life like this going back and forth, trying to appease and trying to appease to the point where God just becomes another one of those people they have to appease. You know? And so it's just, how can I appease everything and everyone? God rejects people like that. Now, don't don't mistake in me. God loves people. God is long-suffering, and he's patient, and he redeems people, and redeems situation. But the only point I'm trying to make this morning are there are real lasting consequences to rejecting God and pleasing people. Here, he says, now I'm going to seek a man after my own heart. And then three verses later, 
it introduces this man named David. Now notice this, and I'm done. Saul is older. He's the age of a king. Saul, in appearance, is like a king. Saul, either in leadership style, he's looking to please people, is like a king, like a politician. And then in chapter 16, in introduces, God says, now I'm going to introduce you to a man after my own heart. And by the way, he's a little boy. Because the skill and the talent and the natural part of the person, God does not need. What he needs is an obeying, obedient heart that seeks to please him. And so the very first introduction to David is, hey, there's this huge giant and everybody's afraid of him. And David says, but he's defying the armies of the living God. Let me go fight him. Why? Because I want to please God more than men. This morning, I want to put before you, pray. Pray and ask God. When push comes to shove, and it's ultimately about pleasing a person in your life or people in your life or God, which way do you go? I think what we're going to find over the next couple weeks is this. Ultimately, the reason is because it pleases yourself. Got the negative out of the way first because the next two weeks is going to be the opposite side. And that is, what does a person look like whose heart is set to seek after pleasing God? Now, the thing I love about David, and I'm going to get ahead of myself here for a moment. David messes up a whole lot. Like, he does a lot wrong. And it's very sad that his reputation is so marred by his experience with Bathsheba. But even that, even that situation is perhaps more than any other situation indicative of the fact that David sought after God's heart. Like that very thing that we would say, there's no way he sought after God's heart. No, if you look at that situation, it is indicative of the fact that yes, he did above all else. And we'll look at that next week. I pray this morning, God would help us. God would help you. It's a miserable way to live, to be enslaved to everybody around you who is imperfect and sinful rather than enslaved to a perfect God who loves you. I place the two before you this morning. I pray God would speak to you through his word. I hope as we go into next week, get a chance, go read the 51st Psalm this week. Because that will be a very focal point over the next two weeks to illustrate where David's heart was, even amidst his sin. That's our message this morning.